Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, what up? Welcome in. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Ball. We got a lot to get to in this uh, episode because um, there is a new book out about LeBron. You're like, oh, God, what more could I learn about LeBron James? Well, a lot. Jeff Benedict is the author. And you're like, man, Jeff Benedict. Huh. Who is that one? Well, think of who the biggest athletes are in the 21st century, right? Tom Brady, Tiger Woods, LeBron James. And now with LeBron James, he is he has completed the triumvirate. I, I think that's the word. He has done the biography on all three. Um, but I think it's a unique biography because we do know many of the stories and yet there's there's some detail that we have missing in connecting all the different kind of tissue. It's all in this book. I'm reading it. It's fabulous. We'll get to Jeff Benedict in a second. Speaking of LeBron, you know, there's there are people that are critical of LeBron for, oh, he just shoots too many threes. And while I'd agree with you, I also think you got to understand that at 38 years old, you know, LeBron knows himself pretty well. Like he tries to get those runouts and straight line drives and get a shoulder into guys as often as possible in transition. But there's also just the case of, hey, man, he gets tired. And I think he's gotten more and more comfortable being a catch-and-shoot perimeter shooter as time has gone on. Obviously, that was not a strength in his career. But uh, I, I'm going to disagree. He's got to keep taking those three. Got to make some. Got to take good ones. Got to not settle. Um, but what do people want him to do? Go down and play bully ball in the post all the time? He can do it some on undersized defenders. He can't do it on Aaron Gordon. Can't do it on Jokic. He's not a natural post player. He hasn't really developed that part of his game, you know. And especially when you have Anthony Davis, it's it's there's just not necessarily or Vanderbilt, especially in the game, there's not the space in there to do all that much. Um, I've actually been impressed with the Lakers, considering you're playing in altitude, considering the pace you're playing at, and there are parts of the the Nuggets which are some pretty obvious flaws. Uh, which become apparent, you know, they, they go through stretches where they don't play defense. You know, they will take some ill-timed shots. And as spectacular as Jamal Murray was going back to game two, you know, there are times in which he can take bad shots and go through series where he misses a ton of shots like he did in the first half. 
uh, or he struggles to guard like he did in game one and at times in game two, or like in game two, even when he's playing well, he's not a natural point guard and pressure sometimes. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if they double him some um, on some pick and rolls every once in a while because he will kind of throw it up for grabs a little bit. But he's a spectacular shot maker, and uh, it was incredible what he was able to do in that second half and turn a disappointing shooting game around and just hoop. Uh, while Jokic was still really productive, he, he continues to get tired in the second half. Let's see what it looks like at sea level when they play the Lakers. And it does feel like, you know, the Nuggets are kind of one win in L.A. from breaking the spirit of the Lakers. You know, I mean, the Lakers' struggles are, I think Dennis Schroeder is a pest defensively and does a tremendous job. But man, offensively, he leaves a lot to be desired. D'Angelo Russell is really frustrating. I think they're a minus 52 with him on the floor so far through two games. Something crazy like that. He continues to struggle because he's not a great defender. And his entire game is based upon whether or not he makes shots and not necessarily creating shots for others. I think that's the flaw with the with the Lakers. As for the Nuggets, like I thought they were the best team. I just don't know if they can actually win this series. There's just so many moments when you're like, all right, well, now's the time in which if they just Work it, take a good shot. They win this game, and something goes awry. You know, there's been so many opportunities in both games to put the Lakers away. And I mean, you just even take last night where they have the Lakers where they want them, with you know under a minute to go. Jamal Murray gets the ball in bounds, turns it over, and LeBron misses a layup. You know, I mean, while you can be critical of LeBron for missing a layup, you also would say like. Look, he makes that layup. It's a three-point game, and they don't have to foul, and the Lakers got a chance to come down and tie the game. Game one, Lakers had plenty of opportunities. LeBron had a wide-open three, a chance to, to tie the game, or maybe even take the lead, and they, they couldn't capitalize. So for Denver, as well as they played in games one or two, there's still a lot, a lot of meat left on the bone, and I, I don't know whether or not they'll be able to learn how to get all the meat, clean all the meat off the bone moving, moving forward. And, and, like, look, if the Lakers come back and win this series, it continues to build the legacy of LeBron, especially with the Lakers. But I will point out that while there's a ton of equity gain based upon the turnaround in this team, and this is a team that's been turned around, right? They were falling out of the possibility of playoffs when the trade was made, trades were made, and then LeBron was hurt, and yet they figured it out. And LeBron has, I think, assumed a really good and different role than other times in his career where he facilitates, he moves the ball, he plays within the structure of an offense. Many times he doesn't hold the ball the way he used to used to hold the ball. There's still moments in which LeBron tries to be LeBron and force his will, but there are times in which he shows that he's a human being and he understands his age and he moves the basketball and it's allowed others to be really successful. So there's a lot of good. But I will tell you that, you know, when you live in Los Angeles and it's a Kobe town, if LeBron loses in the conference finals, to the Nuggets, you get all the well. Kobe wouldn't have lost that game, lost that series. Regardless of the fact that Kobe lost plenty of series, I'm just telling you what the narrative will be. All right, let's uh, let's let's get to our discussion with Jeff Benedict. He's an award-winning and acclaimed author. His new book is the biography of LeBron James. Jeff, what was the impetus behind the book? I mean, the impetus is that um, you know I got to write Tiger Woods's biography. Um, I got to do the dynasty, which uh, was 20 years of Tom Brady. And I think LeBron is 
the the third of the three greatest male athletes um, on the American stage in this century. And so it it's a it it completes the the trio. How does it work? Like I, I'm fascinated with, with that. You, you just okay. I've, I've done these other two. This makes <laughs> sense. What like legitimately? What's the process like of going from idea? It, it makes sense to me. You're yeah. the guy who wrote the other two, but how does it come to actually be? You know, so that's a great question, uh, Doug. And the truth is, and being completely honest about it, the idea to do LeBron wasn't mine. Um, it was proposed to me by my publisher um, <clears throat> in a meeting. And I remember I, I was not prepared for that at all. I had no idea that they were going to recommend that I do LeBron. And when they mentioned it to me in a meeting, it was simply this. What about LeBron? That was just the question. It's three words. And I, in, my agent was with me, my literary agent. I never looked at him. I just looked back at my publisher and said, yeah. Um, I mean, it was to me, it was such an obvious, tremendous idea. I didn't think about anything other than that. It wasn't until you know, after I'd said yes and had time to really think about what I had just committed to, that I was really overwhelmed by the magnitude of, you know, what I had just committed to. And I would liken it to, you know, standing at the bottom of a massive mountain and not being able to see the top from where I was. And so I still followed the same um, process that I followed with my other books, which is, a deep dive into, you know, intensive research, trying to read everything that's out there that's been written about LeBron, but maybe more importantly, everything that LeBron has ever said um, over the years, whether it's in printed form, whether it's in a an interview that was recorded and is on video, whether it's archival video that people haven't seen before, but it's it's gathering all of that and I spent about a year building a timeline for LeBron's life. And it's once you do that, the, the timeline is what enables me to then, from a 30,000-foot view, look down and say, okay, here are the areas that, yes, everybody who knows about LeBron knows about these things. For example, everybody knows he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated when he was a teenager. What can you say about that that nobody knows? And the job of a biographer is to do that at every step of his life, is to you have to cover the things that people know because they're monumental moments. But your job is to either a find things about those moments that no one's aware of or reframe them in a way that is illuminating for the reader. What about tackling? You mentioned like you read everything written about him, everything he said. Um What's the job like? Obviously, you're trying to find new and different ways to more thoroughly tell some of the stories that are already known and many of the stories that are not. But what about the the basic stories? H how do you decide, okay, this has been overcovered and this is not? And how much how much, you know, because again, in in my job, you know, when you're doing radio, you're doing a pod, you can't they tell you never assume. Don't assume everybody knows what you're talking about. Right. How do you decipher what is assumed and you can 
gloss over and what you have to make a deep dive into because there is at some point limited space and things have to get edited out that's a great question and um i think when we're when we're talking about the 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 challenge you just brought up about on a podcast don't assume everybody knows uh, that's a good rule of thumb thumb for a journalist as well um what i would say about tiger woods and tom brady and certainly lebron james is they are arguably the three most covered athletes of our time. Right. And in LeBron's case, I would put him at number one because, um, I mean, him and Tiger are a close one, too, right? And Tiger was on national TV when he was two years old because of golf. But LeBron, we all know from the time he was 15, even before he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, he was being followed around by, by people with cameras, video cameras, still cameras, journalists. His life has been more covered than it's hard to point to an athlete that had more coverage than him. So I would say in this instance, it is a safe assumption. It's in other words, it's a I'm breaking the rule a little bit. And I am assuming that everybody knows he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And so I'm going to treat that story a certain way. Everybody knows that in the summer of 2010, he did something incredibly controversial when he went on TV and announced he was going to Miami. And everybody knows that four years later, he's going to leave Miami in an equally um, you know, well-publicized way and announce in an essay in Sports Illustrated, he's going home and then win a championship. So there's those touchstone moments that you know, A, you have to write about them because the whole world knows about them. But you know, it's what are all the other details that are in his life that probably people don't know that lead up to those moments. And, and I spent a lot of time like pinpointing what are those. And here's an example of one of those, Doug, like everybody knows he's compared to Michael, right? It's, it's the never ending debate. Who's the greatest of all time, Jordan or LeBron? What can I really say about that? Well, as a biographer, I don't really want to weigh in on that. I, I don't want to make those kinds of statements, but what I can do is take you back in time to when LeBron first met Michael, which is a story that hardly anybody knows. And I was fortunate to, you know, you find that LeBron was actually keeping a journal back then. And he was doing it for Slam magazine. How many people read those journal entries back in, you know, in that time period in 2001? Hardly anybody. And even if they did read it, they don't remember it. And so I leaned into those journal entries because they're a great uh, original source. It's LeBron's own words written as a teenager. They're unfiltered. It's him in the moment. And he's talking like a teenager would talk. And he's talking about things like meeting Michael for the first time. When you find things like that as a biographer, that's stuff where you go, okay, that's a gold mine. Let's go down that road because now you can introduce content that people haven't read. And it, and it puts a different a totally different gloss on the Jordan LeBron debate. You know, one thing that one kind of flaw in LeBron's story is there's no real career crisis, right? I, I'd say the, the two, the, if the lowest points are not playing well in the NBA finals and uh, after deciding to leave Cleveland, right? Whereas Tom Brady, six round, and also, and then after an undefeated season, losing the Super Bowl and tear up your knee, right? Yeah. Uh, we And we know about Tiger Woods and the injuries mid-career. And then, of course, 
right. all of his personal uh, personal misgivings. Like there, there's there's kind of, I mean, is there is there something I'm missing? But it feels like I mean, I I guess the decision and the Dallas series are like the lowest points, and really in reality. If those are your lowest points, that, that that that's not the strife of so many other stars. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think one of the things that stands out about LeBron to me, because I've I've written about a lot of athletes over the last twenty five years, from high school athletes to college to pro, it's um, incredibly rare to find an athlete um, who has the kind of spotlight that LeBron has, and with that comes tremendous wealth fame, power. And as a result of that, there's there's so many temptations at your feet and hands. And LeBron um, doesn't participate. One of my favorite things to write in this book was back in 07, he allowed a, a, a woman from Esquire named Lisa Taddeo, a terrifically talented writer who knew nothing about sports, to shadow him through part of that season. And one of the things Lisa Taddeo would become known for now is she's written these incredible books about women and, you know, like sexual relations with men and kind of how men deal with women and see women. So I thought she would be a really powerful person to talk to about what she saw when she was shadowing LeBron in places where there were women. And um, she was watching LeBron's eyes. And one of the things she said that I thought was fascinating was LeBron's eyes never wandered. And I know the significance of that because anyone who's a man can appreciate the challenge that she's talking about is you're a guy who is surrounded by beautiful women in all kinds of circumstances. And having a wandering eye would not only be natural, but it would be easy. And she said she could not believe the discipline that LeBron had because in her opinion, and again, this is her interpretation, but her interpretation was he was so focused on making sure that basketball was protected as the most important thing for him that he wasn't going to let anything distract him or deter him or take his eye off what his goal was. And I think that that tells you a lot about LeBron and why he has had the kind of career you're referring to. And so when we say, what's the biggest controversy we associate with LeBron, it was the manner in which, not even the fact that he chose to go to Miami, but the manner in which he chose to announce it. That's the worst thing you can say <laughs> right. about him. And that's, that's. And, 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 and like, look, if we're honest, you know, Tiger Woods grew up in a different era started his career in an era where we didn't really cover or care about his personal life. Right. And we suddenly started to care and got religion kind of as sports viewers and sports fans. LeBron's yeah. been in that era, his entire career. So yeah. it's even more powerful. Um, the fact that there's been literally nothing off the floor, right? Like the, again, the worst thing off the floor you could say is, is he too involved as a parent that he likes to get into layup lines sometimes with his kids' games? Like that's yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's, it, it's really it. It feels like one of those interesting books, but is it dull because there's not? What's the no. spice there? What's it, the spice? It, it's not dull at all because there's to me there's a ton of spice. Like, and I'll give you an example. Like right after he 
shortly after he meets Michael, he, he also meets Jay-Z. And there's a great chapter where LeBron has just been drafted. So he's the number one draft pick. He's 18 years old. He hasn't played a game in Cleveland yet because they've just had the draft, but he knows he's going to be a Cavalier. And that summer, Jay-Z has him come to New York to play in his streetball tournament. And back then, this was a really big deal. I mean, you can't imagine today that NBA players in the draft would be playing in a streetball tournament in New York City. Right. Right. It's, it's unheard of. But LeBron went there. The more important thing, though, from that summer is the time he spent with Jay-Z when Jay-Z was at a crossroads in his own career. Jay-Z's older than him. He's thinking about walking away from hip-hop music altogether and doing other things. LeBron's just starting his career. There's this fascinating formation of a relationship between Jay-Z and LeBron that's, that's not a relationship between two guys that are just famous and want to hang out with someone else who's famous, but who actually see the world the same way. And Jay-Z sees in LeBron something that was different in Jay-Z. Jay-Z was angry when he, his dad walked, you know, wasn't in his life. And we know the things that he turned to when he was a young person. He looked at LeBron and saw that LeBron was different. LeBron never did those things. He was always on a certain path. And I bring that up because the other thing that happened when LeBron joined the NBA, keep in mind, is Kobe Bryant got arrested and charged with sexual assault in Colorado. People forget that that happened as LeBron was entering the NBA. And there's a great moment where LeBron's in New York making a commercial with Spike Lee for the NBA. I think it was a TNT promotion piece. And Spike Lee was, was really upset about the coverage around Kobe's arrest and once again, an African-American star athlete in the news for all the wrong reasons. And he actually, Spike Lee actually talked to LeBron's agent at the time and basically said, this can't happen to this kid. This can't happen. There's too much riding on him. And what's really interesting is if you go back and look at LeBron from that period, when LeBron was trying to figure out whether to choose Nike or Adidas or Reebok, he visited Nike and he, he saw the commercial that Charles Barkley made where he said, I'm not a role model. It's a famous commercial. And it bothered LeBron as an 18 year old. It, it struck him as like irresponsible, not in a holier than thou way, but more like, but of course I'm a role model. I mean, every kid that likes basketball is going to look up to me. And his approach was so different about those things that by the time he got much older and he finally lashed out at Barkley, which was way later in his career, and he lashed out at him because Barkley was lashing out at him for the way he plays the game. And, and basically, LeBron got sick of it and goes, you know, you're the one who said you're not a role model. You're the one who threw someone through a window and, and spit on someone and all those different things. And LeBron's point was like, I've gone through my whole career and never done any of those things. That's hard to do. So to me, it's not boring when you when you try to get into LeBron's life and understand how hard was it to be that guy? I think that there's a lot of tension and drama there that has been sort of underappreciated. And that's kind of what I was trying to tease out. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at FoxSportsRadio.com. 
And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. He he does have a bit of a reputation of telling some Wendy's, right? Uh, yeah. th- there's the there's the Muhammad Ali book. There's the Godfather quotes he's been asked about. There's the prediction of of musical groups being talented and people tracking it, you know, and and um and people kind of roll their eyes and goes, you know, and they and they allow him to do it because he's LeBron. What, what have you been able to track that of is is that a is that a lifelong thing where he has a tendency to tell tell some LeBrons uh, as they may be? I I think the thing that is really different about LeBron is he's been he was slow slow to speak out about politics. He was slow to join social media. He had to be convinced to get on Twitter. And uh, it was really, you know, one of his friends in the NBA who finally convinced him he should join Twitter. And he joined Twitter in the summer of 2010, right as he was going to make his announcement. I think his first tweet came out right as he was about to announce. I'm saying that because once LeBron got comfortable talking about politics and once LeBron decided to join Twitter, he was so different in his behavior than Michael or Larry Bird or Magic Johnson or any of the greats who preceded him in the NBA. Frankly, I would say any of the greats in any of the other sports, including Tiger and Tom Brady, is LeBron went all in. I mean, once he entered the political space, which happened after Barack Obama became president, LeBron didn't just occasionally say or do something. He has he has been the most politically active, socially, socialist, socialistically active athlete in America for the last 10 years. And similarly, he has used social media as a vehicle to express himself um, much more than any other athlete. Part of that's because he has more followers. But I look at that as you seeing a more uh, 3D view of LeBron's character, because LeBron's a funny guy. He has a great sense of humor. He is inc- incredibly enthralled with entertainment. He loves movies and television. 
He does watch a lot of TV. He watches a lot of films. He can quote the lines because he's watched them so many times. To me, that just makes him more interesting. He's not as buttoned up as someone like Jordan was. Um, what about the decision is in the book that we don't know? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> because, um, I mean, the book opens, the first page is LeBron riding in a vehicle from an airport on the New York border, driving to Connecticut through the backwoods of Greenwich to the house where he's going to be holed up for a few hours before driving down the hill into town to do the ESPN event that's going to change his life. And um, I decided to focus in on what was happening that afternoon in Greenwich three hours before everybody saw what would happen on TV because it sets the stage for a lot of things and it really shows you where LeBron was headspace-wise as he was about to make that announcement, as he's walking up to this estate in Greenwich with Maverick Carter and Rich Paul, um, who are still with him today as his agent and his business manager. And Savannah Brinson, his girlfriend, who's now his wife, was there. And, you know, LeBron is thinking that he has no idea what how much his life is going to change in about three hours. And I thought it was really important to take people in that in that moment and then, you know, have a different focus when he gets down to Greenwich. You sort of need to see it from the perspective that LeBron is seeing it from right up to the moment where the, the plane lands in Miami at two or three in the morning later that night. And Pat Riley is standing on the tarmac in the dark waiting for LeBron to get off that plane. And Riley knows Riley knew before this happened, he knew that the world was going to change for LeBron in ways that LeBron and his team didn't appreciate. And I think when LeBron stepped off that plane, Pat Riley was ready because of two things. He knew the world had just changed for LeBron, but he also knew he now had the best player in the world on his roster and the Miami Heat were going to start killing teams. And so that's where I decided to open. What about the finals against the Mavericks? Emotionally, what was, yeah. what was he really going through? You know, I, I think that one of the things that I learned about LeBron that I thought was a really important thing to understand is that he hates to be alone. Um, he, he's like the opposite of Tiger in that regard. Tiger is a solitary man. LeBron is the opposite of that. He grew up an only child. He didn't have a father. He was lonely and alone a lot as a youngster. Basketball, once a basketball was put in his hand by a man who was like a father figure to him, put a ball in his hand as a fifth grader, showed him a basketball court for the first time. And when LeBron realized that the ball was a key to opening doors to friends, because he was good at this thing, he could make friends through this game. LeBron has always looked at basketball differently than most players. So when you get to the 2011 uh, finals with Dallas, you got to remember that this is a guy who's been, who it's very important to him to be liked. He likes to be liked, not just by his friends, but by everybody. 
And for the first time in his life, he was hated, widely hated, not just by a rival team's fans, but by everybody in the NBA. The only place LeBron wasn't hated was in Miami. And that was a really new experience for him going through that 2010-11 regular season as the most hated athlete in America. The kinds of threats that he and his family uh, incurred, all of that came to a head in the Dallas series. And I think ultimately when you say what happened to him in that series, because he seemed to disappear in that series, I think it's hard to appreciate how much that graded on him and wore on him emotionally, physically, mentally by the end of the series when they lost, especially after all the bragging. Um, that was the low point of his career. Um, wasn't when he made the decision to go to Miami it, and they burned his jersey. It was a year later when they lost to Dallas. And LeBron went into a tailspin. He was alone, holed up in a house in Miami with no one no family members, no friends. It's the low point. And, and I leaned into that chapter too, because I thought it was important for people to sort of, to the extent they can, feel how low LeBron had gone. And what's interesting to me is one of the first people that he saw when he came out of that cocoon that summer was Bono, believe it or not, because U2 was playing in Miami and LeBron and Savannah went to see them, and they got some time alone uh, with Bono. And I just thought, you know, it's interesting. At this point, LeBron is, without question, the most famous athlete in the world, not just in America, in the world. There aren't many people on planet Earth who were more famous than LeBron by the summer of 2011, or infamous, however you want to put it. But Bono was one of them and who had been through more than LeBron. And I just thought it was, it was fascinating that of all people for him to have a moment with, it was Bono. Most people don't know that. And so again, it's an example of finding the moments in the man's life that people aren't aware of that I, you think are, but this is important, right? Of all the people he could have talked to or been around in that moment, it's the lead singer of you too. So how do you, how do you pull out of it? You're in a tailspin, you hit yeah. rock bottom. How do you pull out of it? I think one of the ways he pulled out of it that was most important was a conversation he had with Dwayne Wade. And Dwayne Wade, to his credit, is this the Miami Heat was Dwayne Wade's team long before LeBron got there. And it was it was Dwayne Wade's team when LeBron got there. And I think what, Le what Wade told LeBron after the finals loss to Dallas was, you need to take over this team and you need to be LeBron. In other words, in Cleveland, it was LeBron's team. Everybody knew it. LeBron dominated. He didn't have as good of a cast around him in Cleveland, but he was the guy. And, in, and I think what Wade recognized was in order for Miami to win, LeBron had to be un uninhibited. He couldn't be constrained by worrying about, is it going to look like he's taking over his, Wade's team by asserting himself offensively, by shooting more, by taking over games, by scoring 40. And Wade was basically telling him, you have to be comfortable taking over. 
Be- because basically he's saying, I'm comfortable with you doing that. I want you to do that. And they worked out alone that summer, the two of them, Wade and LeBron. And that's where those conversations happened. And it was, to me, the turning point. Because when they come back to camp that that fall, when the 2011 season starts, they're a scary team. I don't need to remind you. They weren't just beating teams that year. They were destroying them. And the next two years, people were afraid to play against LeBron. He was that dominant. And well, I, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you one that, that jumps out at me. And I I think um, the Jeremy Lin game is is an example to me because um, you know I had Matt Holiday's a, a dear friend of mine. He's a obviously a baseball all star, and he he called me to see if I could get tickets to that game. He went down to that game, and like Floyd Mayweather showed up. There was like a sixteen person entourage. It was everything game, and. The Heat just decided we're going to embarrass these guys, and it was it, it was uh, it was really the end of Lynn's sanity. Uh, yeah. So, so I, I I agree. What led to the Cleveland decision? I mean, that was unique. Yes. What led to that is uh, it's really fascinating. I mean, there's two things going on. There's there's the decision, and then again, how to announce it. And I think for LeBron, the decision part is fascinating because if you think about it right he goes down there to win rings when when riley recruits him every team that was in the sweepstakes to get lebron had a different recruiting pitch riley's was the best by far he basically showed up with a bag full of rings and dumped them out on the table in a conference room in cleveland and lebron looked at all those rings and riley is basically telling him you want rings you come to Miami. And LeBron wanted rings more than money, more than marketing opportunities that New York presented, more than anything, he wanted rings. He goes down there and he gets rings. And equally important, he learns what it takes to get rings, how to get rings. What nobody imagined, especially Riley, was that once he learned that and got that, that he would actually walk away from a team that was built for LeBron to catch Michael in rings. I mean, they were set up for LeBron to catch Michael. He only needed to stay there with the all-star team that had been put around him and with Riley, who was committed to spending whatever it took to keep bringing guys in like Ray Allen, and whoever else we need to bring in next year to keep that thing going. LeBron was willing to give that up walk away from all that to go back to Cleveland to win one championship. And even his inner circle, even his mother, the the family that was closest to him, they were all against it. None of them wanted to go back there and none of them understood why he was willing to go play for Dan Gilbert, who had said all those crazy things about LeBron four years earlier. But LeBron's words, who am I to hold a grudge? which to me is the most important sentence of the entire essay that he wrote for Sports Illustrated to announce he was going back. It says everything you need to know about who LeBron is as a man. And Riley didn't understand it at the time. He was angry, but he didn't lash out the way Gilbert did. He was much smarter about it. He may have wanted to lash out. But I think that tells you who LeBron is. Transactionally, he knew 
that the only way he was going to make good on a promise to win one for Cleveland was he had to go play for Dan Gilbert again. He had to. And so he did it. And I, I again, to me, that is why the biography is so fascinating. When you talk about, is it boring? No. Like these are human decisions that most humans don't understand. Because if you have pride or ego or any of those things, and someone said those things about you and your family, the idea of going back to work with that guy? No way. I'm not doing that. He did it. So now he's in LA. He's won a championship. But with the death of Kobe Bryant, plus just the overwhelming kind of infatuation with Kobe. Um, it's very different from obviously Miami and definitely Cleveland. It's not only not necessarily not his team. Like it's really been until this year that he feels like he's a Laker, right? It's, uh, it's been LeBron plays for the Lakers and it's hard because, you know, it was Kobe's team, Kobe's town. And LeBron was a, was a rival, though they never matched up in the in the in the NBA finals. What right. is that like? What what's that like for him to to be LeBron and considered by many the greatest player of all time? Yep. And yet to not to not really feel truly embraced yeah. by by Lakers fans. No, it, it, Doug, you're you're asking. You're the first person to actually bring that up, and I've done probably a hundred interviews in the last few weeks. And, and you're the only one who's raised that. And uh, to me, it's fascinating because you, again, think about perspective wise, LeBron has only gone to one great team. The rest of his career, he's gone to bad teams. When he was drafted, he was drafted by the worst team in the NBA and he spent seven years with them. When he left Miami, he went back to one of the worst teams in the league. A team Cleveland hadn't been to the playoffs in four years. He went back to that team. When he left Cleveland to go to L.A., the way that was framed was that LeBron was doing the easy thing. He's going to L.A. They have nice weather. It's the Lakers. It's all that. No, that's actually the wrong way of looking at it. He was going to a bad team. The Lakers were not good when LeBron went there. And he was going to a team that was Kobe's team. It's really hard to go to Los Angeles. The Lakers and the Celtics are the marquee franchises in the NBA, built on tradition, steeped in these iconic players. And LeBron is going there almost like an interloper. And the team is bad. It's not like he goes there and it's like this dominant team that he joined. It's, it's not that. And so I think what he's done is he's demonstrated that he, he's the only player in NBA history that's taken three, he's led three franchises to NBA titles. Two of those franchises, you could argue, had no business winning titles, and but for LeBron. And now I think he, you know, look, he's taken this team deep into the playoffs. Who knows how it's going to shake out with Denver? But I think what LeBron is doing is, is hard. I mean, going to LA after Kobe, it's not quite as hard as being compared to Michael Jordan, which is a burden LeBron's had to shoulder his whole career starting when he was 18. But LeBron's done hard things his whole life. And that's why I think this is just, it's par for the course for him. Um, last thing is this, you know, it's interesting. Um, John Morant, obviously in the news 
for the wrong reasons. But yeah. a lot of it yeah. is the guys he's hanging around. Yeah. And uh, LeBron has this small circle, and obviously it's expanded some in L.A. and through time includes NBA players. But he has that small circle of his guys he grew up with or his guys that he's met kind of along the way, and he's brought them with him. And it's interesting, you know, so oftentimes, you know, people tell athletes like you need to get rid of those guys because right. now you're in the, the grown up world and they're still stuck and they're, you know, they're they're chasing your clout. Yeah. How's yeah. he been able to manage that? Because in addition to his own lack of any sort of misgivings off the court, it, there aren't there aren't failure stories, you know, from his production company to his agent to Rich Paul to whatever, like those guys have literally been lifted up by LeBron. How does that all work? How's that all taking place? Uh, most important question of this whole interview um, by far. Look, I, I think the most important decision that LeBron has made in his life, and he's made a lot of decisions, but I think the most important one he's made was who he chose to be a, a, his girlfriend when he was, a teenager in high school. She's his wife today. I mean, he, he spotted someone and he pursued her. And one of the interesting things is she didn't pursue him. Even after he started pursuing her, she didn't pursue him. She didn't know that he was a, a future superstar. She didn't know that he was one day going to be worth a billion dollars. She didn't know that he was on TV already and had been on magazine covers. She didn't know any of that. Most of the girls that wanted to be with LeBron, they knew all that. That's kind of why they want to be with him. He chose beautifully who would be his girlfriend and the mother of his kids and eventually his wife. Smartest thing he's ever done. Second decision, who did he choose to be surround himself with as friends when he was a teenager? Huge mistake that a lot of athletes make. You can't really fault them for it when they're teenagers, but you can fault them when those teenagers become adults and they're handed a lot of money and a contract to play professional sports. And then you bring those, those friends from high school in the neighborhood with you into your profession. LeBron, however, he chose Rich Paul. He chose Maverick Carter. He chose Randy Mims. He didn't choose them in a moment. He chose them over time as he got to know them, trust them, see them, observe them. They were hardworking guys, all three of them. They were never in trouble. They, they had ambitions. They were loyal to him. They never saw him as a free ride to fame. All those things. When, when he offered Rich Paul a job right after LeBron was drafted and signed his Nike deal for $90 million, he offered him $50,000 a year to work for him. 50,000. That's not a lot of money. Rich Paul took the job because he wanted to earn his way. And I think that that's what's fascinating about LeBron. He heard all the people say, you're stupid to take these guys to the NBA. It's a big mistake. LeBron knew who he had around him. That's why they're still there. I think it is one of the most interesting stories in all of sports is that the same woman and the same three guys that LeBron picked as his circle in high school are his circle today. That, to me, is a big reason why we've never seen LeBron in the headlines for the wrong reasons. Fascinating.
Well, um, I'm into the book. I'd be lying to you if I told you I'd finished the book. But um, um, I was when 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 I knew we were going to talk, I was thinking, is this going to be interesting or? And the more I read and the more I listen to you, the more excited I am to dig deeper into it. I really appreciate your time, and obviously, this is. I didn't, you know, the amount of research that you had to do, uh, combing through everything he's ever said and all of these articles has to be immense. So take a bow. And I sure appreciate you joining me on the pod. Thanks, Doug. It was a pleasure. Well, I can only tell you that I am mm, three quarters through the book and it's outstanding, Uh, obviously masterfully written, but there are anecdotes and pieces, some of which Jeff shared that are in it that uh, will give you a different perspective on stories you thought you knew about LeBron James. Reminder, the Doug Gottlieb show is daily three to five Eastern 12 to two, uh, 12 to two Pacific. We also have the in the bonus podcast, the daily pod covering all sports. It is kind of no holds barred. Uh, in the meantime, I'm Doug Gottlieb and this is all ball. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts